to Hope City Church, Melbourne, Australia. Stay tuned for another inspiring message. So I just want to talk firstly just quickly about that unhealthy suspicion. I mean, if you see someone at your back door when you drive up from being out, of course you've got every right to be suspicious of that person. What are they doing at my back door? But there's an unhealthy suspicion that comes that's motivated or that's rooted in our own insecurities. And that unhealthy suspicion comes out of an unrenewed mind. And Joyce Meyer says that some people think they have discernment, which comes out of the renewed spirit, but really it's just suspicion. And it is important to have discernment. I'm not, you know, that, that's an important part of church life, having discernment. But it's where that motivation of that is coming from. If we look at quickly the story of Saul with David, uh, David had won many battles for Saul. He was doing what Saul had asked him to do. But one day when, when David came back from a battle, the women were dancing in the street and they were singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten, tens of thousands. And all of a sudden, Saul became very envious of David and very threatened by David. And he said... Well, now he's going to want my kingdom. Now, where did that come from? I mean, that wasn't David's heart at all. David was just doing what he thought was right for Saul. But all of a sudden, Saul began to be envious of David. And verse 9 in this chapter of Samuel 18 says, From that moment on, Saul was suspicious of David. So Saul's suspicion was stirred by envy. It was stirred by insecurity. It was stirred by fear. It was stirred by him losing his position. And he felt like he had every right to be suspicious of David, but he didn't. There was no, there was no real source of that suspicion other than Saul's own insecurities and own um, threats and own envy and own orphan spirit, as we would call it today. His orphan spirit. He didn't know his identity in God. He didn't know who God was for him. And he started struggling about, oh no, this person's going to come and take over. Now, I grew up in a home where I every day rubbed up against suspicion. My dad was a very broken and hurting person. He grew up in, um, in Europe and had difficult childhood and came over to Australia and was betrayed in business, felt betrayed by people at church. And he became very suspicious of people. And that suspicion rubbed off on me. And I know now, and I'm not blaming Dad, I loved my father, but I know now that that came out of his own insecurities, his own orphan spirit, his own envy and jealousies towards people. And so he was a Christian man. We grew up in the church. We went to church twice on a Sunday. Um, we read the Bible at the dinner table every night. He said the Lord's Prayer every night. Saturday mornings, we used to go to what was called Saturday morning school. And that's where we would have our Sunday school. We'd try and get kids to do that today. So I grew up in a, in a Christian home, but I learnt to be suspicious of people. And I'm not blaming my dad, but it's important to understand where our struggles in our thinking come from, how they develop. It's our responsibility to then do something with that. But it's important to know where they came from. So I was um, very suspicious of people as well. And of course, I had a low self-worth and a low self-esteem because my dad didn't really portray to me the, the love of God. He never spoke about the faithfulness of God. He never spoke about uh, his relationship with God, how he trusted God, how God loved us. He never spoke of that. We were cared for physically and looked after well in that way. But I, I don't recall ever 
being sat on my dad's knee and telling me how much he loved me and telling me he, how much God loved me. So I grew up suspicious of people loving me but, and suspicious of God, but suspicious of other people too and their intentions and motivations towards me. I distinctly remember one time going shopping at Chenside Park in my early 20s and I met a man there who was from our church and I knew from my father as well and from my dad's opinions that this man was a bit of a show-off. That's what we thought and that's what I was grown up to thought. He had a very outgoing personality. He often did a lot of stuff in church up front and he would pray for people, he would sing and the comments that my dad would always give afterwards, oh, he's just such a show-off. He's just up there to promote himself. And so that's what I thought about this man. Very sad, isn't it? You know, it's really sad. And, um, and I met him at Chernside Park and he'd lost his wife. It was, he was in his 50s and I was in my early 20s. He couldn't find his wife. He stopped to speak to me and say hello. And he was so funny and we had this really great conversation and he made me laugh and we chatted for a while. And when he walked off, I stood there. I distinctly remember standing there thinking, oh my goodness, he is a really nice, genuine man with a fantastic outgoing personality who draws people to him because he's, he's got charisma and he also loved God. And yet I had this wrong opinion of him. We need to be so careful about how we speak about other people, how we talk about other people, because our opinions matter to some other people, to people close to you, to your family, to your children. So it's so important how we speak about other people. And in a church community, this has great ramifications for us as a church community, any church community. If we're not secure who we are in God, if we don't know the love of God, how much he loves us, we don't then understand how much he loves other people. And we can become critical and judgmental of other people, make our own judgments out of our own insecurities and feel that we have every right to do that. And that creates division, it creates split, it creates disunity. We can't build a church community together on suspicious minds. We can't go on together with suspicious minds. So we always need to look at people how God sees them. Yes, there's a place for discernment, but we do it in love. John, John 1 John 4, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. Now, how many of us in the past and even maybe today are tormented by our fears, by our thoughts, by the lies that the enemy has spun? But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So the key is to be made perfect in love, yeah. in God's love, to understand how much God loves us. And then we'll understand how much he loves other people. And we won't look at people with suspicion. We'll look at people how God sees them. And if there is something that's not, if they're saying things that aren't quite right, we will know how to restore them in love, not in suspicion. But my question is here, what if our problem is we're suspicious with people, but we're suspicious of God? Because really, if we're suspicious of people then somewhere deep down, we're not sure of our identity, who we are in God. We're not sure of who God is for us. And therefore, we are suspicious of God. And I want to talk to you about four things that God has shown me. And you already know these principles and truths, but I'm going to bring them out in the story of Gideon. And they're four things that we have to believe 
We have to know these truths if we're going to eliminate any suspicion towards God. So I'm going to look at the story of Gideon. Now, so God chose Gideon from the tribe of Manasseh to free the people of Israel and to condemn their worship of idols. So at the time that God chose Gideon, he was suspicious of God and his intentions. But we'll see throughout the story that God patiently leads Gideon to a deeper belief and trust in him. And that's what he wants to do with us as well. And it may not be done in the short span that it was done with Gideon. God will do it over a period of time, but he will do it if we allow him, if we trust him. As in the pattern of the book of Judges, the Israelites would be rescued by God and then they'd be so happy and go on with their lives. But then again, they do evil in the sight of God and again they would turn to other idols and they would come under oppression again. And that would seem to be the pattern. So... The last 40 years they had lived in peace because Deborah, one of the judges in the book of Judges, had helped to rescue them from their enemies and they had 40 years of peace. But now for the last seven years they turned to other idols again and for the last seven years they had been um, under the oppression of the, uh, the Midianites and the Amalekites. And um, every year when they'd grow their grain, the Midianites would come and steal all their grain and so that they would be impoverished again. They wouldn't have food. And so this had been going on for seven years. So the story begins with the angel of the Lord coming to Gideon while he's uh, threshing his grain in the wine press. And he's doing it in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel says to Gideon in verse 12, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valour. Now Gideon, based on his earthly perspective and the circumstances that were around him, was not convinced. And so in verse 13, he basically says, well, if that's true, if you have been with us, why has all this tragedy happened? Where are all the miracles? I mean, you rescued us out of Egypt, but now we're back here again with the enemy oppressing us. Okay, you say you're with us, really? Where have you been the last seven years? And you might find, hear yourself at times saying that or, having, or have said that in the past. God, where are you? Where have you been? I mean, why did this happen? Why did that circumstance happen? Why did this tragedy happen? But we're looking at the filter, we're looking at God through the filter of our own thinking, of our own circumstances, of our, of our past. And we're questioning, is God really good? And that's the first principle that I, I, I want to instill in you and remind you of. Yes, God is good and he is always good. And we have to believe that he is always good. Now, we know that, this, um, that the Lord had delivered Israel out of the... Um, out of, he'd rescued Israel in the past, but now he delivered them back into the oppression of the Midianites because they turned to other idols because of their sin, because they did evil in his sight. There's sometimes strife and difficulties in our life is caused by wrong choices that we make. God can, will always restore. He'll always redeem. But sometimes we, we get trouble because of the wrong choices we make. Sometimes we get strife and trouble just because we live in a broken and sinful world surrounded by broken, sinful people, hurting people, wounded people, and wounded people hurt people. So sometimes our strife and trouble comes from that. We experience the pain of other people's sinful choices. But Jesus says, 
In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Everything, this is from Passion Translation, everything I've taught you is so that the peace which is in me will be in you and will give you great confidence as you rest in me. In this unbelieving world, you will experience trouble and sorrows, but you must be courageous, for I have conquered the world. So God is good. He is always with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And if you do a search of that in the Bible, there's so many verses that talk about God will never leave us, never forsake us. What the enemy meant for evil, God will use for good. Romans 8, 28, 28. And we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So God is good. No matter what our problems and difficulties are, he will use all circumstances to teach us to trust him and bring us victory. God is good. God called Gideon a mighty man of valour when he was afraid of the Midianites and hiding in the wine press. So God sees Gideon who he is going to be, not who he is right now. And God has total confidence in his own ability to make that happen. So he says, mighty man of valour. So God is calling things that do not yet exist as though they are. So even though Gideon is doubtful of God, God is not doubtful of Gideon. God knows who he has created Gideon to be and what he has put inside of Gideon. So Gideon isn't trusting God, so he's not aligning his thinking with God's thinking. So God is, Gideon is doubting God. And you know, God does not respond to Gideon's mistrust. He doesn't say, oh, well, actually, where was I then? Um, no, he says in verse 14, Go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hands of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? That should be enough. That's what God's saying. Have I not sent you? Do you understand? I am sending you. If I'm sending you, then I'll be with you. It's me calling you to go. So he's ignoring Gideon's suspicions and he's just saying, I have sent you. But Gideon says, Oh my Lord, in verse 15, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Have you heard that before? Have you heard that in your own thinking? God's called you to do something, and then you say, how can I do that? Me? You're talking about me? I can't do that. I'm the youngest in my family. I'm the weakest in my family. I'm not popular. I'm not significant. This is what Gideon was saying. Again... Gideon does not know his identity in God, and either do we. I mean, some of, we're getting there, but I'm just saying sometimes we don't know, we forget our identity in God. So principle one is that we always have to believe God is good. Principle number two is we have to know our identity in God, that we are children of God. We have to know that and what that brings us, what that means for us, what, what is our inheritance in that. So and God is never going to ask us to do something in our weakness and then say, oh, well, good luck, hope it all goes well, good luck with that, ciao. God is never going to do that. When we feel weak, then God is our strength. And God is looking, he's actually looking for weakness because then he will get the glory. The weakness in our flesh, weakness in our, in our, in our identity. It seems that, it's our weakness that qualifies us for strength. When we are willing to trust God and do what we are unqualified to do, 
It's our obedience that qualifies us. He's asked us to do it and we step out and do it. And that's what qualifies us. Not the skills, not the training we've had, not um, the popularity we've had in the past, not um, how good we are. He's already, and he's already equipped us. for the, If he's asked us to do something, then he's already equipped us. So us saying, well, who, me? I can't do that. It's no excuse because God's preparing you for such a time as this. He's already put what you need in you to complete the task. And then, again, God doesn't answer Gideon's question or his questions of identity. He doesn't answer that. He says again in verse 16, Surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So he's saying to Gideon and reassuring him that he has always been with him and that he will always be with him. That should be enough. That should be enough. That, that your identity is not based on what you've done and, and your skills and training, but that your identity is based on the fact that you have God's presence in you. Amen. I mean, I would love it if people said to me, you know that, um, that girl who was uh, preaching last... I've forgotten her name. What was her name? She was preaching last Sunday. And someone said, oh, the one who's got the presence of God in her. Wouldn't you love people to say that about you? Oh, she's the one who's got the presence of God. We're all the people who have the presence of God. And that's who our identity is. We're all unique in the way that comes out, but that's our identity. So Gideon says in verse 17, If I have now found favour in your sight, so he's something, okay, all right, maybe, maybe what you're saying is true. You've called me a valiant warrior and you said you'd be with me. So, but I still need a sign. I just need a sign that it's really you who's talking to me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and get an offering and I'm going to set it before you and see what you do with that. So just wait here. So Gideon leaves the angel of the Lord sitting under the tree at the, at the wine press where he was um, threshing the, the grain. And he goes away and it says he goes to prepare a goat. But some versions say he goes to cook a goat. So I was thinking about that. When I cook a roast, if I cook a three kilo roast, if I've got the whole family over, well, I, I leave an hour per kilo. So I'd, I'm figuring a, a goat, a small goat, would probably be about three kilos. So I'm thinking, if he's going to cook a goat, he's going to be away three hours, leaving the angel under the tree, waiting for him to come back. I mean, I'd be going like, the angel's under the tree, oh, hurry up, hurry up, the angel's under the tree, oh, I hope he's still there when I get back. That's what I'd be doing. I don't know, I, I, that just boggles my mind. But the thing is, what it does say to me is God's patience. God's patience in our lives. God, I don't know if I can do that, so I'm just going to go away for a couple of years and try and make myself feel better about myself, maybe do some study, do some training, and then I'll come back. And I hope you're still going to be there. And you know what? God is still there. He will still be there because he always redeems the time. So then he comes back with his offering and the angel... Um, he puts his staff on the offering. It's consumed immediately by fire. It all burns up. So this is supernatural act that happens. And then the angel departs and leaves. So Gideon stand there. Wow. Okay. That was supernatural. That must have been God. <gasps> that was God. I've seen him face to face. Now I'm going to die. Because he was under the, well, under the law where if you... We read about in the Old Testament, if anyone saw the face of God, they would die. 
So now he's, he thinks he's going to die. But then the angel of the Lord says to him, he's departed, but he hears his voice and he says, uh, he imparts peace to him. He says, peace to you, Gideon, and do not fear, you shall not die. And so then out of thankfulness, Gideon builds an altar to God. This is really interesting because Andrew Beale in his book, The Mystic Awakening, says the word peace is the Hebrew shalom. So while that word can mean absence of strife, the general meaning at its root is completion and fulfilment by entering into a state of wholeness and, un and restored, unimpaired relationship. So what God was saying to Gideon is, peace be to you, Gideon, is that you and I are one together. Our relationship is whole. Any doubt that you've had is restored. We are one together. You and I are one so that's where we're up to with Gideon. But then that same night, God asked Gideon to destroy the family idols. Now, Gideon is still divided in his thinking. He's, he's still double-minded. So he's seen, um, he's seen this, uh, the angel of the Lord. He's seen this supernatural act, and he's still divided in his thinking. So when God asks him to destroy the family idols, out of fear, he does it at night. But God is the one who sent him to ask him to do it. But he still does it undercover because he's scared of what his family's going to think. He's scared of what his father's going to think. He's scared of retribution from that. So he does it at night. And he does destroy the idols. He's, but he fears the opinions of people, of what's going to happen. And we can all relate to that, fearing other people's opinions. But it's interesting to note here that, that Gideon's father was a man who worshipped idols. So Gideon had not had instilled in him complete faithfulness and trust in God. He hadn't had uh, the teaching growing up that we, just, we only worship one God, we don't worship other idols. So Gideon's father probably would have made him suspicious of God because he was worshipping God, but I'm going to worship, worship other idols as well. But he's learning to overcome that. Now I can say my father made me suspicious of God, but I have to learn to overcome that. I'm learning to overcome that. But how sad is it? Because we cannot let our past define us. We cannot let our past keep us in bondage and fear. So how sad would it be if I said in 30 years' time, in when I'm in my 80s, and I say, oh, well, I've always been suspicious of God and I still am because of my father. I mean, how sad would that be? That's the thing that keeps me going is I don't want to be the same person in 30 years, still struggling with the same things that I'm struggling with today. I want victory in my life, so I want to get rid of that suspicion of God so that I can be everything that he's called me to be, so that you can be everything that he's called you to be. It's so important that we work on our stuff. We look at our past, but we don't blame our past. We look at it to work out what's going on in my thinking and what do I need to do now to change my past. So it still could, took Gideon courage to do it at night. Even though he did it at night, it still took him courage. And in the morning, of course, the, the people were angry. His family were angry. But it's his courage that actually gave his father a revelation because they wanted to kill Gideon for what he did in destroying the idols. And the father said, don't kill him. If Baal is really a god then let Baal deal with him. Let Baal kill him. And so the people left him. Of course, Gideon didn't get killed. 
So his father had a revelation that the gods that he was worshipping, Baal and the idols, were not the true gods. So when we step out in courage and do things in courage, we help people get revelation <clears throat> when they see what God's doing in us. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Wow. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. In Hebrews, this literally means the Holy Spirit clothed himself with Gideon. So the Holy Spirit empowered him, gave him authority and power. And the Spirit, the same Spirit that went on Gideon, lives in us now. So Gideon received power and authority, and we have that power and authority in us. But you know what? Even though Gideon had the, now had the Spirit of God in, on him, he still doubted. He still was suspicious of God. He still was not sure whether God was going to come through for him. And in a way, that's a little bit encouraging for any of us sitting here who know that we're saved, we have the Spirit of God in us, but... I still, I, I, I just doubt a bit. And so Gideon is encouraged to us that if Gideon can get through this, we can too. We can get through it. So because he was still a little bit um, unsure, had God really given me a power and authority to overcome the Midianites? Had God really done that? He asked God for a sign. And that's a story that we all know really well. So I won't um, go through that other than to say he asked for the sign of the fleece, that, that that would be wet and that the ground would be dry the next morning. And yes, it was. God was faithful and gave him the sign. It wasn't enough. The next night he said, can you do it the other way around? Can the fleece be dry and the ground be wet? And God gave him the sign, was faithful, and it was. Wow, God must really be with him. God has to be with him. So you see God's patience and mercy. He didn't get angry at Gideon and go, oh, again? I mean, Gideon was worried about that because he said Gideon was worried that God might get angry, but he still asked. And we can be the same. Is God going to get sick of us? Is God going to get tired of us? Is God going to be disappointed with us? No, no, no. God is patient with us. So Gideon gathers an, an army of 32,000 men under his banner. So he must have had some leadership and influence in his life to be able to do that. And they camp on the hill. The Midianites are in the valley and Gideon and his men camp on the hill. God didn't want Gideon to claim glory for himself. He didn't want the Israelites to claim glory for themselves. So he whittled his, his army of 32,000 men down to 300. And I'm sure a lot of you know the story. He started with 32,000 and then God said to Gideon, send anyone who's fearful home. Well, I'm sure Gideon probably wanted to go home, but he couldn't. He was the leader. So he's going, okay, I really want to go home, but all right, now I'll have to stay. So 22,000 went home, 22,000 men who were at the uh, camp, or all the tents where they, were, where they camped. I think they, by this time they'd gone to the front lines. They, they all went back to their tents, 22,000. Then God said to Gideon, I want you to get the men to have a drink at the nearby water, and those who bring their hand to their mouth as they drink are the ones I want you to keep. That was 300 out of 10,000. 300 took their hand to their mouth to drink, and those are the ones that the Lord said for Gideon to keep. So the ratio went down from 13 to 1, 13 Midianites to 1 Israelite. 
the ratio was now 450 Midianites to one Israelite. So you can imagine that Gideon's sort of thinking like, oh my gosh, what is God doing here? Does he really want me to, to go into this battle? Does he really want me to fight? Is he really going to come through for me? And God knows, even before Gideon says anything to God about his fear and doubt, and this is the graciousness and patience of God, God knows that Gideon is fearing and still not 100% trusting him. I just want to mention here the third principle. So God is good. We are his children and our identity is secure in him and we have all power and authority. When, when God put the spirit, his spirit on Gideon, he gave him power and authority. We have the spirit in us. We have already power and authority. So Gideon had the power and authority. God still knew that he was a little bit suspicious because you know what he hadn't done? He hadn't renewed his mind. He hadn't changed his thinking. He hadn't aligned his thinking with God's thinking. And that's the fourth principle. We have to renew our minds. So what, so what happened? God told Gideon to go down into the enemy's camp, 350,000 Midianites, to go down into the enemy's camp and there God would encourage him and strengthen him that he would um, hear a dream. If you're afraid, go down to the camp with Puri, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. That's verse 11. So he went down to the camp with Puri, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and Amalekites were all there, lying in the valley. Their numbers were as locusts, and their camels were without number. So as far as the eye could see, they could see the enemy and the camels. And he sent Gideon and his servant down into the enemy's camp. I mean, how tough would that be? And he sent them to the right tent, to the right two men out of 350,000. To the right tent, the right two men. And Gideon heard them saying in verse 13, he heard one say, I've had a dream and to my surprise a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and over overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said in verse 14, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. So when Gideon heard this account and its interpretation, the Bible says in the next verse, he bowed down and worshipped. So when you really think about that, to bow down and worship in the enemy's camp, so he felt... He must have felt fairly confident that he didn't go here and go, quick, better get out of here. He stood there and worshipped God. He had full confidence that God was with him, that God was going to protect him, that God was going to bring him the victory. So I think in that time, as he worshipped God, I think that then he was able to renew his thinking, that he was able to line up his thinking with what God had been telling him all along. And so he left that camp confident that him and his men would have the victory. He returned with courage and faith, totally believing that God would do what he said he would do. And that the word is full of God's promises for us. And we have to believe that God will do what he has said he will do because all his promises are yes and amen. We cannot be suspicious about one little thing about God. Every promise that he gives us in his word is yes and amen and he will fulfill it. We have to focus on him and what he's doing for us. So Gideon now truly believed he had the power and authority. 
So he went back to his men and he said in chapter 7, verse 15, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. So he, as a leader, was confident. Arise, the Lord has delivered us. So he must have instilled a lot of confidence into his men. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpet on every side of the whole camp and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. I don't know where he got this battle strategy from. The Bible doesn't actually say but he just said this to his men. And I believe it's probably once he heard the dream, got the confidence, knew he had the power and authority, and as he worshipped and prayed and on his way back to camp, he, God would have downloaded that strategy to him. And really, you have to have confidence to go into battle with 350,000 Midianites. You have to have confidence to go in with a trumpet, pitcher and torch. Yeah. No weapons. Yeah. You have to know beyond a doubt that God is good, I'm his child and my identity is secure in him and in him I have all power and authority. So they went down, they blew the trumpets, they confused the Midianites. The Midianites actually thought in the natural that it was a huge army coming against them because in those days a commander would um, blow a trumpet and every commander then would have a battalion of men. So every one of those men, 300 of them, they weren't all commanders, only Gideon was, but he got every single one of them to blow a trumpet. So that was 300 trumpets. So and if every commander had a battalion, they would have thought that every trumpet sound meant a battalion of men, like 500 to 1,000 men behind them as well. So they thought they were surrounded by a big army. And every, oh, this is uh, verse 20, they blew the trumpets, verse 21, and every man stood in his place all around the camp and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. Gideon got the victory in his heart through a revelation of a dream. Through the word of God, he got the victory. He broke off his earthly limitations, his fear of suspicion and doubt by lining up his thinking with what God was saying to him. He knew God was true. He knew his identity was in him. He knew now that he was a mighty man of valour. He believed he was a mighty man of valour. He knew that God's spirit was on him and therefore he had power and authority. And, so the, and the word and the revelation that he got in the dream helped him to renew his mind. And he released and carried the glory of God in, into the battle. But look what it means in the spiritual for us as we, as we uh, delve deeper just into this part of the story. Do you know the trumpets symbolise the voice of God and the word of God being decreed from our mouth. So they went into the camp blowing the trumpets, decreeing the word of God. The pitchers, those clay vessels, are our earthly restraints, our flesh. And the light inside the pitcher, which they broke when they came into the camp, but all the Midianites were confused when the light came <clears throat> and they thought a big army was surrounding them. So... The light is the spirit of God, the glory of God in us. So when they broke the pitches, God's glory shone. When we get rid of our earthly flesh, when we are able to break our flesh and not let our flesh stay in control, break the clay vessel that we are in, then God's glory can shine through. It's when we break 
our earthly vessels that the glory of God can shine through. In 2 Corinthians 4 to 6, it says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So we have the treasure. We have the treasure of God in our earthen vessels. The life of Jesus is in us. His glory is in us. So when our clay jars are broken, it's then that we can shine his glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Did you know every one of you, every person sitting here today has the, a, a unique facet of God's glory inside you? Every one of us. And unless we can shine that glory, we're not fulfilling what God's called us to do on this earth because we're unique. If you don't give what you've got, then someone misses out. People miss out. If you don't shine God's glory, someone's going to miss out because you're unique in what you bring to people, in what you carry, in the glory of, of God that you carry, your presence God's presence in you, and then you bring your presence into a room, you shift an atmosphere with God's glory in you. In verse 18, back to uh, Judges 7, all the men yell out, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So the sword of the Lord is God's word in the heart of man, and the sword of Gideon is God's words in Gideon's mouth. So the sword of the Lord has to be in our mouths. The word of the Spirit. We can't get by going to church on a Sunday, listening to the word and worshipping God and then not doing anything through the rest of the week. We have to renew our minds daily with the word of God. We have to meditate on the word of God. We have to get revelation and truth from the word of God. There are so many lies of the enemy that are, that are in our minds that keep us in bondage and fear. They're lies that we've grown up with, lies that I grew up with through the home that I grew up in because of my own uh, parents' insecurities and doubts and fears. And I learnt their doubts and fears. I took them on for myself. And there's so many lies that we're still believing now that we have to break the power of. The enemy has no authority over us, but he only has authority when we empower him with the lies that we believe about ourselves. So we must renew our minds daily. It's not a, if you want to, it will help. No, it's we must. If we are going to release the glory of God that's in us, if we're going to change cities, if we're going to change nations, we have to renew our minds. Number one, we have to know who God is, that God is good. Number two, we have to believe that we are his children, that we are adopted into his kingdom, that he loves you just as much as he loves everyone else. There is no favourites. God has a plan and a purpose for you as an individual. That we're not to be suspicious of other people because of our own insecurities. God has placed people in our lives around us to show us his glory and to draw out of us the destiny that he has placed within us. We need one another. We cannot be suspicious of one another. We need to grow together and build community. We need to know that our identity is in God and that we are his children. Number three, we have to know that he's given us power and authority. All power and authority is given to us. Romans 8, 19. The earth is groaning for us to release God's glory within us. We need to step into the glorious freedom that's in us. We can't hide in the, in the wine press like Gideon anymore. We can't hide. We've got to... Um, 
we need to know that we have the authority and the power. Otherwise, we will always be suspicious of God.